Good morning, everyone. It was great to learn about Holland. I want to encourage you to think about something. 80% of people who become Christians become believers through friends or family members. So while it might seem like um, a, a, a fearful thing to go and stand on a corner and talk to strangers, I want to encourage you that probably the most significant people in your life that you have the opportunity to reach are people you already know. Neighbors, coworkers, relatives, friends. So be praying that God will give you the opportunities to build relationships with them and then to, to verbalize your faith, to just ask questions. Hey, can we talk about the Bible sometime? To just invite them to a Bible study or give them a book to read or just in a gentle way, just that, that's the greatest way that people are reached through prayer and then just connecting with the people God already has in your life. So be praying for the Netherlands and be praying for our communities and neighborhood that each of us can be a witness during the week trying to win our friends to Christ. All right. Jesus came to this earth, and the Apostle John said this in the book of 1 John. He said, the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. And the idea behind that is there's no way that we would have ever figured out the Trinity. Jesus came and he revealed that to us. And that's what we've been talking about last week and this week. So if you weren't here last week, I really want to encourage you to go online and listen to the first message on the Trinity. Because the Trinity is a really important doctrine in the Bible. It's, it's the difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. And so if... if if you're confused or you've never really thought about it, it's important that you're grounded in your faith and, and that you understand why Christians believe in the Trinity and why it matters. So this morning, we're going to pick up from where we left off last week. And I'd like to start with just a definition. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a definition. I want you to do something novel. Write it down. The dullest pencil is better than the sharpest memory. If you can, maybe you can remember it. But if you can, I want you to write it down. In just a moment, our ushers are going to... Actually, they can come now. If you don't have a Bible, we always give away free Bibles, and you're welcome to take a Bible. But even if you, at this point you go, I don't know if I believe the Bible is the Word of God. It claims to be. And the Scriptures reveal to us this doctrine of the Trinity. Even though it doesn't mention the Trinity, the New Testament is, is clear on this doctrine. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you so much for our time of praise, our time of prayer, our time of um, reporting what you're doing in the world, and now this time of reading and studying scripture. May you teach us through the Holy Spirit to know what we believe so that we can witness and teach others, teach our children, worship you the way you revealed yourself, and stand fast in the truth of the gospel. So bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Here's a, here's a definition, a, a working definition of the Trinity, and then we're going to talk about it. It goes like this. There's only one true God. You know, not everyone believes that, but, but I think the Bible teaches this very clearly. There's only one true God. So that's not a big deal in America because there aren't a lot of polytheists. There are some because internationals are coming, but not a whole lot. There's only one true God. This is what the Bible teaches. who exists in three distinct... So there's one true God who exists in three distinct, equal, and eternal persons. Who exists in three distinct, equal, and eternal persons. There's only one true God who ex exists 
in three distinct, equal, and eternal persons. So, so the, word, the word Trinity, that's not even in the Bible. No, but does the Bible teach that, that there's one true God who exists? Now, when we say they're equal and eternal, that means there's never a time that there wasn't a Trinity. For all eternity, God has existed. He didn't morph into this one day and say, oh, I think I'll be three. That's what, that's what God has revealed to us. Somebody's like, who would make that up? Well, that's a good question. I would think no one would make that up. And the fact that God has revealed it to us is something we would never have figured out on our own. God has revealed that he exists through creation, but not the Trinity. That's something that came through the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how, how do we come to that? How do we come to the idea that there's one true God who exists in three equal, eternal, and distinct persons? Well, I'm going to give you an acronym. I started it last weekend because a lot of people say, I don't get it. I don't get the Trinity. Well, if you can remember the word get, then each of those three letters is going to stand for a statement that I'm going to defend from Scripture that, that sort of put together comes up with that definition. So G-E-T. G stands for this statement. God exists as three persons. It, does, does the Bible teach that? God exists as three persons. We'll, we'll come back to them, but... Again, this is something Christians need to, you know, Jehovah's Witness, they meet together and they study, they know what they believe, even though I think they're wrong. I think they're bringing a false gospel. But at least they know what they believe. They don't go, oh, I don't know, my pastor said so, right? And as Christians, we should know what we believe and be able to, to study the Bible and teach it to others. Yeah, there's a mystery to the Trinity, but there's some, some clear teachings in the New Testament that I could say, hey, I, I believe this. I believe God exists as three persons, so that's G. E each person is God. And we'll come back to that one. Each person is God. And then the last one is T. There's only one God. So if you could, if you could show from the Bible that those three statements are true. God exists as three persons. Each person is God. There's only one God. Then you can see, oh, well, this is how we get to an understanding that there's only one true God who exists in three distinct, equal, eternal persons. So, Last week, I mentioned that when I try to explain this to people, I don't start with G. I don't think you have to go in order. I just put it in get so you can remember, you know, if you're like, oh, what does the Bible say? So I start with T. There's only one God, okay? And I, I, I'm going to give you a passage for each one. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The great Shema of Jewish people. Monotheistic, there's only one God. Okay, that's what the Bible says. God says, there's no one like me. To whom will you liken me? Don't make an image of me. There's no one like me. I alone am unique, set apart. I alone am God, right? So there's only one God. So you're like, so when people pray to statues, I thought they were all just different ways to get to heaven. No. And when the Muslims are praying to Allah, the Jews, you know, we're not saying, oh, there's 10 different gods. There's one God, okay? And he's revealed himself in the Bible. Now, the next one I do is G. I go up to the G. God exists as three persons. Now, again, that doesn't prove the Trinity, but Matthew chapter 3, at the baptism of Jesus. Remember when Jesus got baptized? He's in the water. God the Father is in heaven, and God the Father says, this is my beloved Son. And then the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven. Now, all that does is show us that those three persons are distinct. It's not one God just showing up in three different outfits. They exist at the same time. Jesus is in the water, the Father's in heaven, and the Holy Spirit's coming down. 
But that doesn't prove the Trinity because that passage doesn't say there's only one God. That passage doesn't say Jesus is God. So that's why the E is probably the most important one. Each person is God. Each person is God. And that's where, that's where all the cults have come in. That's where the distortions have come in. So when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your house, they would agree there's only one God. They would not agree God exists as three persons, and they definitely would not agree that each person is God. So does the Bible teach that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all God, equal and distinct eternal? Yes, and that's where you and I should be able to interact and show people from the Bible, this is why I believe Jesus is God. Satan's so clever. Throughout the history of the church, he's always attacked Christians through persecution and false teaching. And so even when John was writing the book of 1 John, they were all, Satan was already trying to, to turn people away from Christianity. So in the first century, they believed, many of the Greeks believed that matter was evil, and so God would never have a human body. So they taught that Jesus did not really come in human flesh. He just looked like it. And, and in 1 John chapter 4, the apostle John said in verse 1, if anyone denies that Jesus came in the flesh, he's not from God. See, this isn't like a minor thing. To, to deny the Trinity, to not believe in the Trinity, is to not be a Christian. So this isn't kind of like, well, you know, people have different views on this. This is fundamental to the Christian faith. This is the heart of the gospel. And so you and I need to know why we believe that. And if we believe that. Don't take my word for it. Is that what the Bible says? So when, when I'm trying to show that each person is God... Nobody's arguing that the Father is not God, okay? So that one's pretty easy. So how do I know God is, the Father is God? Well, the Lord's Prayer would be fine, Matthew chapter 6. Here's how you pray, our Father who art in heaven. So nobody's really arguing about that. But the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, this is the one I want to spend some time on this morning. Does the New Testament teach that Jesus is God? Jewish people would say Jesus is not God. Jehovah's Witnesses would say Jesus is not God. The Muslims would say Jesus is not God. In fact, I was talking to a, a Muslim med student this week, and I said, you know, I'd love to know, what do you, what do you believe about Jesus? Is he just a prophet? And he says, well, no, he's, he's not just a prophet, but they certainly wouldn't worship him as God. They wouldn't call him Lord. And so how do I, how do I know that Jesus is God. I'm going to give you some things to think about. Number one, this one's by, by implication. Jesus receives, I'm sorry, Jesus forgives sins and receives worship in the Bible. Jesus forgives sins and receives worship in the Bible. Why is that important? Well, in Mark chapter 2, when they brought to Jesus a paralyzed man, Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. And they said, who can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And they were right about that. They were angry. He's a man. And he, he said, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. And they were right about that. And I think if Jesus was speaking in our time, he probably would have said to them something like this. Did I stutter? Yeah, I just said, your sins are forgiven. And then in essence, what he said is, you want me to prove it? That was the easy part, saying your sins are forgiven. But in order that you might know that I have authority to forgive sins, watch this. Get up and walk. And he healed the man. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is God. And Jesus forgave sins. And by the way, as a side note, if you're still a seeker or you're not sure if you're a Christian, 
The only way you'll ever be forgiven of your sin, the only way you have any hope of stepping into heaven is if Jesus Christ forgives your sins. So if, if you're okay with some pastor or priest saying, you're forgiven, just say these things, I would encourage you, you better read the Bible because the Bible doesn't say that. Only God can forgive sins, and Jesus is Lord, and he's the one that forgives us. Jesus also received worship. Now, why is that significant? Well, do you remember when the devil said to Jesus, hey, bow down and worship me? And Jesus says, no, no, no. You shall worship God alone. Him only you shall serve. Jesus knew that the Bible says don't worship anybody but God. But in John chapter 9, Jesus healed a blind man. And at the end of the chapter, he said to the blind man, do you believe in the Son of Man? He said, who is he, Lord? And Jesus said, I am he. And this is what it says. And he worshiped him. He worshiped him. Now, in, in the book of Acts, when, when Cornelius worshipped Peter, Peter said, don't worship me, I'm just a man. In Revelation 21, when John worshipped an angel, the angel said, don't worship me, worship God. But when the blind man worshipped Jesus, he received it. In fact, he said, this is what I came into the world for, that those who are blind might see. Jesus knew that you should only worship God, and yet he accepted worship because he is God. Another evidence, just write this down and we'll talk it through. Jesus in the New Testament is Jehovah of the Old Testament. Like, wait, what? Jesus in the New Testament is Jehovah of the Old Testament. When God revealed himself in the Old Testament, it was a progression. He didn't reveal himself all at once. He didn't say, here's a thousand statements about me. But he gradually revealed more and more about himself as we learn, even when Jesus came, they didn't understand the Trinity in the Old Testament. But one of the ways God revealed himself was through his name, and it's a very important story. Some of you are familiar with it if you ever read the Bible. Exodus chapter 3, when God met Moses at the burning bush, and he says, I want you to go back. And Moses says, well, what's your name? And God says, my name is I am. And that Hebrew word, I am, is a verb. It's, it's pronounced Yahweh or transliterated, you'll, you've heard this word, Yahweh. Okay, that's, 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 that's a verb, right? That's God's name, Yahweh, okay? But when God introduced this name, Yahweh, he also stressed the importance of this sacred name so that in the Ten Commandments, you shall not take the name of Yahweh in vain. Don't use it, don't use it as an adjective or as an exclamation of fright and certainly not as a curse word. So when God revealed himself as Yahweh, the Jewish people began to, to hold that name in such respect that, that they didn't even want to pronounce it. So instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Hashem, the name. And, and according to historical documents, when they wrote Yahweh, they, they would stop and wash their hands. And so in many English Bibles, when you're reading the Old Testament, when you come to the word Lord in the Old Testament, all the letters will be in capital letters, L-O-R-D. That's to show you that this is that sacred name, Yahweh, the Lord. Now, over time, because Jews didn't want to pronounce the word Yahweh, they decided to come up with a word that they could use a name that wouldn't actually use a name, but it would, it would, it would be the same name. So they added some vowels, and they came up with the name Jehovah. 
So some of you have heard the word Jehovah. Technically, Jehovah isn't the actual biblical word. Even though it's in the Bible, you'll read Jehovah. But, but, but literally, it's from Yahweh. So you could sort of go, oh, wait a minute. So the Old Testament teaches there's only one God, and he's Jehovah, right? And so if someone comes to me and says, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, I go, I am too. But we have one point of difference. I believe Jesus is Jehovah. And that's the difference. So why do, why do Christians believe that the Yahweh, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, is Jesus? Well, there are numerous examples of that, including the fact that the New Testament equivalent word for Yahweh is kurios, which is Lord. Okay? Now, Lord is used of other beings beside God, but it was also used in, in the Greek Old Testament when they were trying to put it in Greek, they would put Lord, kurios, right? So in the first century, when, when, when the emperors were beginning to <clears throat> institute imperial worship, the Roman Caesars, some of them actually had on a coin, Caesar is Lord. Caesar estine kurios, Caesar is Lord. <clears throat> Christians had a counterstatement. Jesus estin kurios, Jesus is Lord. And there was actually persecution from these emperors that if you would not bow down and acknowledge Caesar as Lord, it would cost you your life. <clears throat> so in the New Testament, when a Christian heard this verse, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. They understood that that might cost them their lives, but they cared more about their soul than their life. So when we today confess that Jesus is Lord, what we're saying is, I believe that Jesus is Yahweh. And so one of the ways that you can develop this is that there are a number of Old Testament prophecies about Yahweh that the New Testament tells us were fulfilled by Jesus. And I'll just give you one example. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, Isaiah spoke, and you're going to go, oh, is that what that was about? Isaiah spoke of the forerunner when he prophesied the coming of Jesus. And he said, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way of Yahweh. Well, in the New Testament, when John the Baptist preached, the New Testament authors like Matthew, in Matthew 3, verse 3, he says, when John the Baptist was preaching, he was just doing what Isaiah 43 said, a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for Yahweh, for the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is Yahweh. He's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Yahweh. One more, there's, I have a bunch of them, but one more that I think is important is there are, there are several direct statements in the New Testament where Jesus is actually just flat out called God. One of them you're familiar with, John chapter 20, Doubting Thomas. Remember Doubting Thomas said, I didn't see, I'm not going to believe in him. And Jesus shows up to him the next week and he says, touch these holes in my hands and in my side. <clears throat> and, and Thomas when he did that, John 20, write this down, because you could have this to talk to people and look it up. In John 20, verse 28, Thomas says to Jesus, 
my Lord and my God. When he became a believer, it was like his eyes were open. You're my Lord and my God. John 20, 28. There's another one that's really cool. It's in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. If you're reading the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is trying to show that Jesus is better than angels, Moses, Old Testament ceremonies, the high priesthood. But in Hebrews chapter 1, the author gives seven reasons why Jesus is better than angels. But one of them, the author of Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament Psalms in which God the Father calls his son God. Now, I want you to think about that. When my dad would speak to me, he would not say, hey, dad, come here. I'd be like, I'm not dad, you're dad, right? So we might expect that God the Father would, would call his son Sonny boy, small fry, Jesus, only begotten, you know, my boy. But in fact, in, in, in Hebrews 1.8, this is what it says. Of the angels, he says, they're ministers in flaming fire. But of his son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You're like, what just happened? The father said to his son, your throne, Oh, God is forever and ever. God the Father called his own son God, establishing that equality. So Jesus isn't like, gee, Dad, I wish I was as great as you. They're equal. And we could go on and on. There's other, Philippians 2 says, Jesus did not regard equality with God, something he had to grasp. So the New Testament is very clear that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God. And by the way, let me just say this. If you're still seeking or thinking about Christianity, it's all about Jesus. And if you want to find God, you will not ever find him unless you come through Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. And to become a Christian is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is your creator. He's God's only son who came to this earth and died for your sins. And by his grace, shed his blood so that you could be forgiven and was raised from the dead as a demonstration of his deity. And God's offering you salvation as a gift. The Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so I invite you, if you've never done that, to come to God and say, Lord, I believe that Jesus is God and he died and rose for me. And I want him to be my Lord, my Savior. Forgive me and change me and let me become his follower. And as a gift by his grace, you become a Christian. But then we get to know him and we, and we grow and we begin to learn and worship and pray and serve him. And so it's a privilege for us to know God through Jesus. So where do I go from there? I go, okay, Jesus is God. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? If ever you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, the Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a person, nor do they believe the Holy Spirit is God. So they believe whenever it's talking, whenever the Bible mentions the Holy Spirit, it's just another way of talking about God or God's power. So he's not a person and he's not God. There's not three distinct persons. So it's kind of interesting because it would be sort of like me saying, I have a spirit, right? But my spirit is not a distinct person. It'd be like somebody saying, 
Some people think I'm a schizophrenic. Some people think I am too. It's like, wait a minute. So I'm not separate from my spirit. My spirit is a part of me. And so that's how the Jehovah's Witness look at the Holy Spirit. He's not, he's not a person. In fact, sadly though, Christians sometimes sort of do that as well. We sort of downplay him. In fact, I, I want to caution you to try to think about this. When you speak of the Holy Spirit, don't use the term it. Don't go, the Holy Spirit, it was working, right? If I came over your house, don't say, Pastor Tom came over for dinner. It ate a lot. Say he. When Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit, he used the masculine pronoun he. He's a person, okay? And we know he's a person because the, the, the Bible tells us that, number one, the Holy Spirit has feelings. When we sin, Ephesians 4.29 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So when we sin, 29 and 30, that, that it, things don't have feelings. A person does. The Holy Spirit has a mind. He thinks for himself. In Romans chapter 8, it says, God knows what the mind of the Spirit is. The Holy Spirit makes choices. 1 Corinthians 12 says, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts just as he wills, as he chooses. He, he, so he's a separate being, eternal. And sometimes we either overemphasize him or we don't have a ghost of a clue who he is or what he does. So, so how do I prove from the Bible that the Holy Spirit is God? Well, again, this is a summary. And if you weren't here last week, as I said, I want you to listen to both sermons and, and make sure you understand these things. And if you have questions, let us know. Because we want you to be grounded in the Christian faith. But a great passage to show that the, that the Spirit is God, and this is why we believe that each person is God, is Acts chapter 5. Some of you know the story. It's at the end of Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they wanted to look religious, but they didn't want to make a sacrifice. So they sold a piece of property, and they were giving the money to the church, which they didn't have to do. But what they did is they kept back some of the money, but they lied about it. They go, this is all of it, Pete. We love you, man, and we love Jesus, and this is all of it. And the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter that that's not the truth. That was a lie. And it cost them their lives. They dropped dead. God struck them dead. God isn't just this, oh, children, more candy. He's a holy God. And so Peter said to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now think about that. He didn't say, why well, Satan fill your heart to lie to me, Peter? He said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he said this, you did not lie to men, you lied to God. That's Acts 5, 3 and 4. You lied to the Holy Spirit, you just lied to God. So, this is why Christians historically have believed that God exists as three persons. You're like, wow, this is deep. It is deep. Nobody made it up. God didn't spin himself into a trinity. This is who he is. And in his, in his powerful grace and mercy, he's chosen to reveal himself to us, to give us a glimpse, as we saw last week, as John Frame said, a glimpse into his own inner divine interactions, into his own life. And so, so we go, wow, that's, that's like mind-boggling. Yeah, it is. So what do I do with that? Well, let, let me suggest some, some things that you and I need to think about. If, if, if these things are true, and I believe that there's one God, <clears throat> number one, I need to be careful against false teaching because Satan loves to, to get people away from this. There's even, even among sometimes evangelicals, there's a, there's a movement called the Jesus-only Pentecostals, okay? It's not Jesus-only, okay? 
There's modalism that we talked about, this, this, this heresy where God just shows up as one of the three persons, but he can't be all of them at the same time. There's tritheism, where some people have gone, well, there, there are really three gods. And then one of the other heresies was the one I mentioned last week, Arianism. In the 300s, remember, Arius says, hey, Jesus was begotten, God created him. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses are. So every time you see a Jehovah's Witness, you can smell the sulfur. Because Satan is just doing the same thing he's done throughout history, and that is to try to get people to deny the gospel, to deny the fundamentals of the faith, and to lose and destroy souls. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, In the last days, many will fall away from the Christian faith, paying attention to the doctrines of demons. So as you're teaching your children, or as you're teaching people, personally, I wouldn't hand them the shack. Some of you read the book Shack. You're like, yeah, I really struck a chord. Well, I understand what the guy's trying to do in that book. He's trying to show uh, the mercies of God and that, you know, God will forgive you no matter what your past or whatever happened to you. But in the midst of it, he distorts God terribly. God is an African-American older woman like Aunt Jemima. Jesus is a Mediterranean. And, 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 and so I'm going, and, and he says to the guy, why, God, why did you reveal yourself this way to me? And in the shack, he says, because if I told you I was a father, you would have rejected me because you didn't get along with your father. And I'm going, you know what? Well, I know that people have been touched by the shack to distort the Trinity. Somebody asked me this morning, why do you think he did that? And, I, and, and I'm going to give him the benefit. It was well-meaning. He wanted people who might be turned off to God to give it another look. But let's not twist who God is to sort of go, Come on over here, I want to tell you about God. And then at the last minute, I'll go, well, I didn't want to tell you, this is who he really is. So we need to be thoughtful and think when you sing and when you study and when you pray. And then as you're trying to teach children, while I'm okay with analogies, be careful with analogies because they all have shortcomings. So when you say to kids, the Trinity's like an egg. It has a shell and a yolk and a white. Well, but it's one. But there's shortcomings with that because they're not equal, Okay. And there is no analogy that's not going to have shortcomings. But I want to move to ask this question. If each of the members of the Trinity is distinct, how do they each function in our salvation? How does the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit function in our salvation? In fact, Wayne Grudem once said this. He said, the only distinction in the persons of the Trinity are the ways that they relate to each other and the way they relate to us in salvation. So even though Jesus and the Father are equal, they have a relationship, okay? But we're not going to talk today about how they relate to each other, like when God sent his Son or Jesus sent the Spirit. But how do, they, how do they relate to us in our salvation? I want you to remember this using three Ps, okay? The Father plans our salvation. He seems to be the one in the triune Godhead who is responsible for his decrees and his plans and purposes before the foundation of the world. Now, you might say, I don't even believe in God, and this is nonsense, but I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. And I pray to God that you'll change your mind if you don't believe this, because this is what the Word of God says. But the Bible says in Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be God the Father who has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So in God's eternal purposes, he was the one who planned our salvation. Before the foundation of the world. But the Lord Jesus, when he came to earth, he purchased our salvation. He's the member of the triune God who came and died on the cross for us. And it wasn't like 
When it says God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus wasn't going, why me? You go down there, Dad. This was all part of God's divine purpose as they worked together. It was God's will that the son would purchase his church on the cross. And so as we think about Jesus, he's not some little baby who grew up and died a, a horrible death. He's God who left heaven and became flesh and lived a perfect life of righteousness and then hung up on that cross and was punished for my sins and shed his blood and said, it is finished. And on the third day when he was raised from the dead, he's exalted to the highest place and called Lord of lords and King of kings. Jesus is Lord, but Jesus is the one who paid for us. That's why we make a big deal about Jesus. And that's why God wants us to make a big deal about Jesus, to worship him, to love him, to praise him, to, to adore him, to talk about him, to glory in him, because Christ is the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And if you're not in love with Jesus, I pray to God that your eyes will be open. You realize he's everything. He's your only hope. He's your friend. He's your savior. He's your Lord. He's, he's, he's Jesus. But then you might say, okay, well, fine. 2,000 years ago, he died on a hill far away. But if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, what he did 2,000 years ago on a hill far away would never have an influence on you because the Holy Spirit applies our salvation. He applies it. Now you go, you said they were all going to begin with P. Plan, purchase, apply does not begin with a P. But work with me here. We're talking about <laughs> emphasis and syllables, right? So applies. You can remember that. Just trying to make it memorable, okay? I'm trying to make stuff up. This is what the Bible teaches. Here's how you became a Christian. At some point in your life, the Holy Spirit took away your blindness and enabled you to understand the Bible. The Bible calls that being enlightened. Hebrews chapter 10 says, remember back to when you were enlightened. Now, this is why so many people go, seriously? You believe the Bible? You read the Bible? You think it's true? That's dopey. That's because they do not have the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians Chapter 2 says this about unbelievers. A natural man, he's not going to receive the things of God. They're foolishness to him. And so whenever people go, oh, I don't believe the Bible, that's because they're blind. And the only reason we believe the Bible is because the Holy Spirit shone the light of the gospel in our hearts. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, God, who caused light to shine out of darkness at creation cause the light of the gospel to shine in our hearts, to give us a knowledge of the glory of God in Christ. That's why John Wesley wrote in, and can it be, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in nature's night, but your eye sent forth a quickening ray, and I woke the dungeon flame with light. So for some of you, it was very dramatic, and you're going, I found the Lord. We have a brother here just saved a few weeks ago. Some of you are just saved. Praise the Lord, you found the Lord as an adult. But even if you can't even remember when you were saved, you grew up around it. You heard the gospel. You can't even think of a time that you didn't love Jesus and trust him and believe in him. That's because the Holy Spirit applied the gospel to you. And he doesn't just open our eyes. He comes into our life. The Bible says when we were dead in our sins, he makes us alive. So, so he regenerated you. And that's why I don't get excited when someone raises their hand. Because there's a whole lot of people that raise their hand to an invitation. But they're not saved. 
They've never been regenerated because the evidence of, of a new life in Christ would be a changed life. Just when a baby's born, doctors don't go, we got him born, we got him born. He's like, is he alive? And if he's not breathing, if he's not moving, smack his feet, suction his mouth, show signs of life. And in the same way, a true born-again person, when the Holy Spirit comes into their life, the Apostle John gives evidences. Those who are born again will confess Jesus. They will, they will begin to abhor sin. They will, they will love the brethren. And so, thank God, the Holy Spirit applied the gospel to us. And he lives within us now. He's permanently sealed us. He gives us gifts. And, and he prays for us. And he's bearing fruit in our lives. And we praise him for that. So let me close with a couple applications, and then we're going to actually sing the doxology. Some of you have never sung it. Many of you have sung it years ago. But a couple things to think about. As you and I grow in our appreciation of the gospel, see the connection between the gospel and the Trinity. John Frame said this. He said, see how each person of the Trinity interacts with the others to bring us out of darkness into light. So as you worship God for your salvation, praise you, Father, praise you, Son, praise you, Holy Spirit, and each of the unique ways that they work to bring us to Christ. Let it affect your worship. As you, as you pray, think about, sometimes pray to the Father. Oh, Father, I worship you, oh God, thank you. But sometimes you can pray directly to the Son. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was being stoned, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, I will caution you, I don't encourage people to pray to the Holy Spirit. Not because it's wrong, but because it's never taught in the Bible. Never. You'll never find anybody praying to the Holy Spirit. Not because it's wrong, it's just not there. In fact, to me, a classic place is in Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul wanted the Holy Spirit to strengthen Christians. I would, you'd expect him to say, and for this reason, I pray to the Holy Spirit that he'll strengthen you. But he didn't. He said, I ask the Father that he will strengthen you th with the power of the Holy Spirit. So while I don't think it's wrong, I don't think the Holy Spirit wants us to draw attention to himself. As J.I. Packer said, the Holy Spirit takes a role like a landscape light. He, he sheds light on Christ, and he wants us to glorify Christ. So let it affect your prayers. Let it affect your worship, your understanding of the Trinity. Beware of false teaching. And then finally, seek to experience some of the sweetness of the triune God in his relationship with one another. The Bible calls that fellowship. John, the apostle, as he became a Christian, he goes, I want you to have fellowship with us and with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus prayed this. Here's, here's Jesus. He says, Father, I want them to be one as we are one, as you are in me and I am in you. And you're going, yeah, well, didn't they ever get on one another's nerves? Nope. Didn't they ever annoy each other? Nope. Well, how could they spend eternity together and get along? Because they're God. Well, that leads to another question. Why can't we get along? Why do my kids annoy me? Why do I annoy you? Why do we get annoyed at our spouse? Because we're sinners. But one of the beauties of the gospel is that Jesus is praying that we might experience this vertical, or I'm sorry, horizontal relationships that are characterized by unity. Even though we're distinct and different, full of forgiveness and charity and grace. Pray for that. That's what Jesus prayed for. Father, I pray that my church will be one. Pray that we'll be unified as a church. <clears throat> it's a privilege to know God in his triunity 
And I trust that you and your family and your friends will hold fast to these doctrines and teach them and believe them and spread them. But let's close. I'm going to ask Benjamin to come. I'm so thankful that God's brought him and our worship team. As, as we turn our hearts and respond to God now, I want you to think about what we're singing. As you sing holy, 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 God in three persons. As you sing the doxology, may your life be enriched as you worship the Lord Jesus. And if you're not sure you're a Christian, we're here to help you find him. We're here to help you to get saved. We're here to help you come to God through Christ. Talk to us. <clears throat> if you want a booklet that you want to share with some of your friends, we'll be happy to give you one of them. But be praying that the gospel will continue to prevail through our triune God. Father, thanks for our time in your word and now this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing the doxology twice this morning.